Hey everybody, welcome back to Tunes Tunes Podcast. I'm your host, Harold. As always, you can follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. Excited about this one. Uh, we've got Alexandra Bohannon from the uh, Cinematic Schematic in the House co-hosting on this. What up, Alexandra? Hello, Harold. Thanks How's for having going? me on. Yeah, thanks for coming through. And then we got Jim Venable here uh, talking to us. Thanks for taking the time, Jim. Really excited to have you on. Happy to be here. Hello to you both. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is an exciting one. Um, you know, we just, we talked to another Jim recently, Jim, yes. <laughs> uh, Jim Lang that did Hey Arnold. And so we're just sticking with the uh, the gyms, I guess. But yeah, this is an exciting one just because, uh, you know, so many of the shows that we watch also have music that's iconic to us. And so I think, you know, a, a few of the shows stick out to us that you were able to work on. And, you know, we're just... Uh, we're happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about scoring some of those. And so, yeah, I'll let, you know, I'll let Alexandra kind of lead off here and we'll kind of jump into our conversation. Yeah. So Jim, uh, one thing that I love whenever I contemplate scoring and film scores, uh, for various composers is, um, whenever we contemplate composers, like I love knowing about your early influences, um, who influenced you, um, and your musical sound as a composer. Um, I, I just think that's just one of my favorite topics to learn about, like the history of the person that goes into their art. Sure. My, my sort of, uh, the first influence that I can think of was I was, um, at my mom's house, I was raised by my grandparents, so and I used to go to my mom's on weekends. And, you know, I sort of like had my whole setup at home where I lived most of the time, go, went to school at my grandparents. But when I go to my mom's, I wouldn't necessarily have all of my stuff, right? So my mom had a record player and a bunch of records. So I would like kind of go through her records and listen to them. And, the, and the, the first group that really blew my mind was the Beatles. And um, I believe it was a compilation record. It was a blue compilation record, which sort of highlighted the Beatles' later years from like 19, I think 67, like Sgt. Pepper's on. And hearing that stuff really blew my mind, like to hear all of the, uh, the mixture of orchestra with rock and roll, with the beautiful you know, harmonies and stuff that they did and the innovation that they brought to their music, um, that really touched me a lot. Um, songs like, uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper's or Strawberry Fields or I'm the Walrus, all that stuff really blew my mind. So like, that's probably my earliest influence really. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. I love, I mean, I love to hear so many people cause it's almost like people kind of hate on the Beatles just because everybody like talks about them. But I love to hear when it like gives validity to their music, when people that have done like such cool things, um, you know, can still list them as a reference and not be jaded about their music. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, the, the Beatles are just so phenomenal. I'm just, that's, that makes me really happy too. <laughs> it, it validates me too. <laughs> like you, we're all validated the, right the, now. <laughs> the only better thing you could have said was like John Denver or something. Oh, yeah. She would have lost her mind. I'm just a dorkly, dorky John Denver fan over here. But <laughs> yeah. That is too funny. No, that's, that's really cool. And it, I, I love hearing about the influences like you were saying before. Well, Jim, uh, you know, kind of talk about like the body of work and everything. Uh, 
you know, I'd really just wanted to talk to you about kind of transitioning from, uh, you know, more of like a, a, a live studio setting, um, you know, something on like live action type TV into the animation realm. Um, I was wondering how that transition kind of happened, you know, going from, uh, you know, doing like a, like I was saying, like a live action TV show to animation, like what was the, uh, what pushed you kind of, kind of to change the gears and go to animation? Well, I was, I noticed that I, you know, I think that's an interesting question. It, 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 one of, I might be wrong, but I always, honestly, I've always viewed myself as someone who started off in animation. I did do some live action stuff for friends or as like smaller independent stuff, but most of like my real, like my first, to me, my first real gig was Powerpuff Girls, honestly. Um, and okay. now, uh, but I find your question interesting. And if, if I may ask you a question, was there, was there a live action thing that you sort of saw me doing previous to that, that I'm just not thinking of, which is entirely possible? Uh, now, the only thing, uh, you know, kind of just in doing the research, uh, we'd seen that you'd worked on uh, Entertainment Tonight. Right. Okay, good. Okay, good. I'm glad I asked. Um, so, so the way that worked out was a friend of mine who was further along in his career, he uh, named Glenn Jordan, is a uh, great composer. He was working on a bunch of different stuff. And at the time, uh, Entertainment Tonight had hired him to do a bunch of library music, basically one minute cues um, in different styles, different genres, different feels. And then they would have that in their library to pull up for different stories that they were telling. So you're, you are absolutely correct. Um, but it was a little different in that case because I was writing away from picture and it was really more about him just sort of saying like, you know, give me some stuff that you know, has like this kind of a feel or this kind of feel, something they could play under like a heartfelt story or something that plays under like a, a, a high <laughs> gotcha. action thing. So that's why I, I was curious about that question, but I, it does make sense. Um, so yeah, early on I did do some library music and then I did do a lot of student films for people at AFI and different colleges in the Los Angeles area. And, but it really Very wasn't cool. until, um, just, well, probably a few years before Powerpuff Girls, I was working with a couple of composers who were doing a lot of animation. They, they did uh, Dexter's Laboratory and a uh, bunch of different shows at Cartoon Network. And I was working for them as kind of the come in at night and cover the cues they don't want to have to do. Like, um, hey, you know, the character's playing a video game in this, in this uh, scene you want to come in and just create some video game music for us? And I'd be sure, you know, I come oh, in and, cool. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. I never thought about that having to be a thing that someone did. So cool. That Sorry. makes sense. Yeah. 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 And so <laughs> that was sort of, um, the beginning of my career started off as being kind of, a a, in a situation where these guys kind of mentored me, I came in, I would write music for different scenes and then they'd come in and check it out. And then they'd, because I was working on their computer system, they could actually jump on and say like, okay, this is pretty good, but it'd be better if you added this or did this. And then they jump on and add stuff to it and do stuff. And I could watch them take it up a notch if so to speak, you know what I mean? Um, after I did that for quite a while, there was just something, um, I guess it was just kind of something in my gut that said, I've done this long enough. I just don't, don't really want to 
keep doing it. And they, they had said, it was, I don't even remember what project it was on. It was just a queue I had turned in and they said, you know, we have some notes on it. And I'm like, I mean, this is going to make me sound kind of like a shitty person. Oh, sorry. I don't know if we're using that kind of language on this show. So I will, uh, curse away. Yeah, <laughs> curse away. I encourage it. All right. Fair. Express All right. yourself. Oh, oh, you're going to regret that. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, this is going to make me seem a little bit like a slacker, I guess, but I just, something in my gut just said like, no, I, I don't want to come in and fix it. Like it's, it's good. I'm good. Like you don't even have to pay me for that one. I'm done. And like, it was just really, I just got to a point where I was done. And, um, a few weeks later they called me and they said, Hey, you know, we're doing this audition tape for a show called Powerpuff Girls. And it's kind of a newer, um, well, it's a brand new show and they're, they're taking more of a electronic, uh, techno at the time approach. At least that was sort of what was so the, the kind of words that would be thrown around at the time. And because while I was, uh, composing, I was also working as a DJ, mostly for private parties, not, not, I wasn't like DJ Testo or Testo, Testo, Testo. Anyway, I wasn't doing a lot of club work, but I was DJing a lot. So I was pretty up on the latest music and stuff. So that sounded cool. But the thing that sort of held me back was, and I think what made me sort of walk away initially was that I wasn't getting any credit on anything. And so I sort of felt like I was um, pouring a lot of effort into something that really wasn't building anything that I could then grow with. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, right. Um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Cause you, yeah, because you uh, you said you worked on Dexter's Lab, but like whenever we looked at like your filmography, it's not like you know there were like citations in in there if you weren't really yeah, and being like cr credited. They, you know. And to be clear, I didn't do much on Dexter's Lab. I, I did some other shows. I, I remember one show that came in um, to their company was this tugboat show called Salty's Lighthouse. And it was Salty's like, Lighthouse, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so like that was my, that was probably my first full-on series where I was writing all the score for it. It was wall-to-wall -wall music. And I would approach these like really almost Gumby-esque tugboat scenes, I would approach them like they were like a Spielberg movie. I mean, I would like put my heart and soul into the themes and I would just go crazy with this stuff. And I learned a lot doing that. So I really, I'm grateful to these guys for giving me the opportunity. But yeah. at the same time, when it came to Powerpuff Girls, I felt inside that I needed to at least ask and dare I say, insist that if we got the show, I wanted to get some kind of a credit on the show if I was going to work on it. And so I asked them, you know, and they were kind enough to say, look, you know, we're cool with that. If you want to, you know, do a demo for the show, we'll give you credit if we get it. And, um, I said, okay. So I, what happened was Craig had Craig McCracken, who's the creator of Powerpuff Girls. He had, he did a short as I believe it was his final short at Cal Arts. It was called the whoop ass, whoop ass stew or the whoop ass girls. I can't remember which something with whoop ass in it though. And that got him a lot of attention at Cartoon Network. And is, I believe is what launched Powerpuff Girls as a series. And so they sent over that whoop ass episode and said, okay, Jim, go to it. You know, we definitely want a techno kind of approach an electronic approach. I remember at the time Craig, um, said, Words like, you know, we love Big Beat. And um, then the idea that I think 
kind of also had entered in, I'm not sure if it entered in at this point, so I'll save it. Um, at the demo, it was pretty much techno and do something different, something unexpected. So I sort of literally like, I would write music and I say, no, that's something I heard before. And then I remember I was at my house and I was just kind of feeling like I was falling into familiar places as opposed to kind of pushing into new ground. And I remember I, I took off all my clothes. It's going to get weird. Um, <laughs> I took off all my clothes and I put them, <laughs> and I put them all on backwards. And I went back into the studio and I just, just wrote, I wrote stuff that I thought sounded <laughs> terrible. I wrote stuff that I thought didn't work. I, you know, I did, I did all kinds of stuff and not, not much of that really made it, but it helped me kind of find some new ideas, maybe some different approaches. Um, and I scored this whole episode and I remember it had everything from a, you know, like a cow mooing to like orchestral samples to, you know, beats and all kinds of stuff. And I sent that in. And, um, the interesting thing about this was that the company that I would, you know, was sort of working under their umbrella, they were saying, um, you know, we're a company, so we may have other composers submit as well. And I was really adamant. I said, well, that's fine, but please, if you can have them identify which demo got the job. And if it's my demo, then I'm the one who writes on it. I don't want to work just as part of a team unless, I mean, with the main guys, that's fine. But I, I didn't want to yeah. be just sort of like part of a, a group. So they, they took the demo, they sent it in, or they actually sent in a, a couple, at least two or three, and um, waited and waited, fingers crossed, and we got a call back and they said, we like the, the one with the red sticker on it, and that was mine. And um, they said, but we're not quite ready to make the decision because Craig had heard some music on a BMW commercial at the time that was definitely right up the, the lane of big beat techno and so they had reached out to this BMW commercial and they'd sent him the scene, the same, uh, you know, episode I had done. And then they'd said to me, we want you to score the BMW commercial and see what you do with that. So I said, fine. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of weird. And so <laughs> I know. And the guys that I was working with at that point, they were sort of like, you know what? we've done enough. Like we've sent in a bunch of demos. They should just either pick us or not. And I think they had kind of gotten to a point where they were ready to just say, we'll just let our demos stand. But this was a case where I, who was sort of hesitant, I, something told me again, my gut was like, no, 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 do it. And I was like, I'll do it. Just send over the BMW commercial. I'll do whatever. That's fine. So, and I, you know, it might not have been that they had me actually score it. They just had me listen to it and do something like that, you know, just to see if I could pull that off. So I did my BMW version and then, um, they did, uh, I guess he did his version of whoop ass stew. And fortunately for me, they, they dug what I did for his deal and they didn't really like what he did for them. So they said, yeah, Jim's it. And so that was that's sort legit. of when I got the gig. That Yay! is so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that, wow. What a roundabout crazy that ass story. Is some story, Holy man. Holy shit. I, yeah, I, I mean, because I have really little frame of reference, like for uh, it feels like uh, probably animating for like uh, like composing for animation and getting those jobs. It feels like almost like a little bit murkier in terms of like the stuff like for like films. It's like, oh, you hire this guy and it's like all just, you know, it feels very 
I don't know, almost like a linear process, but I don't know. It's just like this, pro- that is just such an interesting tale. It, and you know, yeah. I, I have to say, you know, these days, what you described, I would say fits into the model of like late, you know, mid nineties through mid 2000, like 2005 to maybe 2009, but pretty much from like 2009 on, it's been getting weirder and weirder and more <laughs> unpredictable. And like, you don't know, like you can have major motion pictures being scored by people you've never heard of. You can have tiny little projects being scored by top notch, like big composers that you would think would never have the time to do that. So like right now, I feel like we're in the wild west. Like the whole thing is like on its ear right Holy now. Holy shit. Yeah. That's, That's amazing. I love hearing that spe- specifically from someone in that industry. Yeah. Like I. That's because like all we are is just like studying like trends from like, you know, 10 miles away. And it's like, yeah, I think it's doing that, baby. But yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. To be honest with you, my head is currently spinning, trying to figure out and find which ways up with the way things are right now and trying to figure out what I can do to be because it's almost in some cases to have a track record and things that maybe would have been a plus can be a minus. Like I've heard of guys getting kicked out of the, of the running for a show because they had an Emmy because that made them more of a like, Oh, well that guy's going to be more, he's not going to think outside of the box. He's more of like a, uh, like a, he's polished. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it, it definitely keeps one on their toes, you know, cause you can't really rely on like, Oh, I've done a lot of shows. So like pick me because I've done stuff you've heard of. It's actually like, no, no, we want something different. We never heard before, but at the same time, it can't be too different. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. I don't, it must be the, <laughs> yeah. Some of that must be the advent of, you know, the internet technology. Yeah. People, yeah, people yeah. uh, you know, you don't really have to, necessarily know someone in the industry you can anyone can get a soundcloud and put some tracks online and yeah people can find stuff and be like oh shit let's use this okay impromptu question that's not on our list go for okay. it i would really love to hear so um so you've been composing for you know a career in like more analog days and now with like completely almost digital days so how has your process if it has changed how has it changed from analog to d- digital it has changed, um, and by analog, I, 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 I'm assuming you're referring to like live musicians and recording yeah, stuff. Yeah, live and musicians all that kind of thing. or like reel to reel, like tape and things okay, like that. Okay, cool. Um, I, I came in as far, okay, technologically, I came in right when there was a machine called an ADAT that came out. And what that was, was it, it was basically a high end VCR that recorded eight tracks of digital audio to a VHS tape. And so that was that was huge because that made multi-track recording at a much uh, higher level available to someone like myself who was just starting out. Before that, you'd, you'd have to spend like thousands and thousands of dollars just to get the recorder. And then you have to get the board and then you have to, you know, you have to get all this other stuff. So I was just kind of on that crossover period where I got to jump on technologically with the digital thing. Pro Tools hadn't really come out yet. I think it was Sound Tools had just started and that was still like getting a Mac with Sound Tools was a little 
cost prohibitive. So I, I started off with an Atari computer using a program called Cubase, which originally I believe started on Atari. And um, at the time we used a lot of, um, probably the biggest change was if you wanted a particular sound or you would, you would buy a box for that sound. And if you wanted a certain kind of, like samplers weren't things that lived inside computers. They weren't just software based, they were all hardware based. So if you were a composer that was working, you might have 10 matching samplers because you can make them in, into anything you wanted, but you needed all this hardware to be able to like realize multiple instruments at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. And, oh, that's so And cool. as far as like the live musician part of it, at that time and, and even now, you know, recording live musicians on a larger scale, like say for orchestras or bands, we, you, you had to be involved in a show that had a pretty good budget. So even guys, like when I was starting out, it was like I would have a rig of a bunch of samplers, a computer, and all of that stuff tied together via MIDI. And then my computer would act as a sequencer, which is basically a glorified player piano that you can program the notes into. And then that note information would get shot out to these samplers. And then the sound that came out of the samplers would all come back into a mixing board. And then we'd bounce, well not bounce, it wasn't bouncing. It was actually just recording that sound back into another machine, like a like the ADAT that I mentioned, or another Jesus thing was a DA88. God dang. Yeah. What a crazy process. Yeah. That's that is crazy. Like yeah. how far it's come. Like that is insane to think about. Yeah. Totally. Wow. It was nuts. Yeah. So that's, and it's just really interesting. Uh, I, cause I was, I've talked to some sound guys, uh, like who, you know, like work on lots and stuff that the, you know, like once they, when they started doing sound mixing for like films and stuff, they, you know, they were doing, like it was all, all of it was like hardware based, like all cassettes and like, uh, you know, you know, tape film and like all that. And so that transition to digital, like it's one of those things where it's like, it opens a lot of doors for, you know, for new people it starting did. out. Yep. Agreed. That's and so cool, man. Now the, you mentioned the whole analog tape thing. When I did my first films, they, analog tape was the preferred method at that time because Digital stuff had developed quite a bit. Pro Tools was out, but it wasn't quite considered ready for prime time as far as nobody wanted to bet $100,000 on this computer not crashing in the middle of a session and, or you know, losing stuff. So people were still recording that level. They were still recording to 24-track tape. And like I did a movie called Jay and Silent Bob, and that in that case, that was much more of a traditional approach. We had a live orchestra. We had um, an amazing uh, engineer named Dennis Sands, and he recorded everything to analog tape through a Neve, and it was all very like traditional as far as that's concerned. That's crazy. That yeah. is so cool. That's really, and that's really interesting. So when you, you started, you know, kind of your career with Power Puff Girls, was it, so was it only, like, what was your process on uh, Powerpuff Girls, like, okay. or is it only you or, yep. um, how did that, how did that work? Yeah, for you? basically I, it was great because, um, Craig and Gindy, Gindy was, uh, Gindy Tartakovsky, excuse me. I haven't said his name out loud in a while. Um, 
he was working with Craig. At, he, he was the producer on Powerpuff, and Craig was the creator. And, and they both were working at a mall right near where I lived. So they would sometimes even walk over to my house. We met in a bedroom at the, my first house. And um, I would show them the music playing off of my computer. And they would give comments. Um, I guess I should back up a little bit. The initial thing was they would, we would we'd pull out the picture and we do what's called a spotting. And usually I would go to their office for that. And I'd show up with a pencil and paper. I'd write down whatever they said, you know, from here, every, every reel or every show had a uh, time code on it. So we, we could say, okay, at this minute, minute 30 seconds, that's when we're gonna go into this kind of a queue for this long. And then we mark the out point. And I'd end up with sort of a list, a to-do list, if you will, of cues and their lengths. And I would take a first pass at those, and it would probably take me about a week to get a first pass at the whole show, which I think each episode was an 11-minute episode. And um, then they would come over, they'd watch it, they'd give notes. And at first, you'd send over the stuff after the notes, and then they may have more notes. But then after working together a while, you kind of could work it down to where they would come over basically the day before the mix, give me notes, I'd address the notes, and then I'd send it to the mix. And usually, it was rare that they would call from a mix and say, no, you still got it wrong. It was usually, you know, at least workable or, you know, it usually worked out at that point. Um, yeah. Did that answer the question? That's, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. good, good. Really I, awesome. I, got a little, I got a little lost in my own answer, so I wanna make sure I didn't <laughs> No, yeah, you're, you're fine. Um, I got I got lost in your answer too, so sorry. That was really, <laughs> <laughs> just really cool. <laughs> no, that is cool to hear about the process. Oh you know? yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know, kind of in keeping with that same idea, um, is that was that the kind of same kind of process you approached with a show like Samurai Jack? Uh, I don't imagine the process was too different because right. you're working with the same kind of core team. But well, uh, Samurai Jack had a very unique thing about it, especially in the beginning. Samurai Jack was an amazing show, but before I even talk much more about the music of Samurai Jack, I want to I want to definitely like make sure I give some props to a gentleman named Paul Dinletier, who uh, was a huge part of the Samurai Jack sound, and I'll explain why huh. in a little bit. But I, I want to make sure I make that clear. So yeah. I'll give you kind of the lowdown on Samurai Jack. Okay, so when I had started Powerpuff. Um, I worked on that for quite a while, and then Gindy, who was producing it, had started creating Samurai Jack. And when he asked me to do that show, I was thrilled, I was all ready to go, and the initial episodes were gonna be, um, I think the very first one was like a, the idea was to take three episodes and have them all tie together to kind of make like a feature length movie um, as you know, introduction to the characters yeah. and the world and everything. Okay. I just talked to Alex about that yesterday. That's funny. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, I remember the first segment of it was, I think it was like, I want to say 19 minutes or whatever it was. The it was almost entirely, it, it had no dialogue. I mean, it had maybe like a few words, but that was it. It was all visual. And that was something Gindy had done on purpose because he really wanted to explore the storytelling through visuals and music. So yes, that, Man, that that is the iconic thing with that show is like you'd get you'd get to the end of the episode and be like, oh, like 
no one has said anything the whole time. Yeah. And you didn't even realize it because, you know, the visuals and the music are just taking you on a ride the whole time. Well, if you're a composer on that show, you you definitely realized it because it was like, oh, my God, like I have no <laughs> I have no rest. Like it's just oh, constant yeah. music. There's no and, downtime. And yeah. it, was, uh, it was like constant, important music, too. And I'm not saying that it's all not important, but some of it isn't that important because you, you have to stay out of the way more than you are thinking exactly. in terms of being creative and pushing and having a voice and making the music noticeable, you're actually, a lot of times you're staying out of the way. Now in Samurai Jack's case, it was a case where he's basically like, Jim, do your thing, like go crazy. We're going to go all around the world with Jack. We're going to, you know, take him through his entire childhood and all the different places he visits. And when he like was separated from his parents, it's going to be this whole thing. So it was a huge musical opportunity, and to this day, it was one of my favorite projects to work on. It was one of my uh, neatest moments with Gindy because, to my recollection, I remember when I showed him that first episode for the first time, and Gindy is known um, to be, he's, he's a very, he has a vision, and he's very specific, he's very particular, and that can um that can be challenging because it's there's nothing going to slip by like it's like we're going to we're going to get this right and when you're under a deadline sometimes getting it right can seem secondary but <laughs> if i'm being yeah, honest no, you know what i mean no i can understand <laughs> that too yeah but he he was right i mean he he had really great sensibility i i i think he's one of the great directors of our time and it was so like cool for me to see him hear that Samurai Jack episode for the first time because I could see in his face how happy he was. And that I'm and I mean this with all due respect that 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 was not very often that I saw him I I dare say get kind of blown away by something. It was usually like it was either okay that's cool but here we got to fix this 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 and then we got to fix that. You know, it's like <laughs> but this time it was like Oh my, that, wow, you know, like shit, it's working, man. You know, like I could see it was working. He did, of yeah. course, there were some changes and stuff. There always is. But um, so that first episode um, was like really monumental to me. The, the thing that was interesting, though, is that right when I started that show, I got a call from Kevin Smith, who I had worked on a show called Clerks the Cartoon with. And um, Clerks the Cartoon was a, it only went six episodes and it kind of got put into a summer replacement slot and sort of kind of died before it was even born. I mean, I think Kevin mm -hmm. saw that it wasn't going to get the kind of support that he had hoped for. And that was deflating, I think, for him. And honestly, I think by the midway through that little six episode run, he had gone back to Jersey and I was like, wow, there goes my film opportunity. You know, like he's gone. I guess we're just going to finish it up. And then I hadn't heard from anybody in that camp for a really long time. And of course, when it rains, it pours. And Gindy uh, hired me on Samurai Jack. And literally like right away, I got this call to do Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was this major motion picture. And huge for me in my career because I had no feature film credits. It was a film that typically someone with my level of credits wouldn't even have a shot at. And um, so now I was sort of faced with this dilemma of, can I do both? You know, can I pull this off? 
Now, so far, so good. On that first episode of Samurai, it was going good. But it was getting kind of tight because Jay and Silent Bob had sort of picked up. And um, as we headed into the second episode of Samurai Jack, I decided it was probably in the best interest of the show for Samurai for me to focus more on Jay and Silent Bob and to hire somebody to come in and continue the sound that I had established for Samurai in uh, that first episode. So, and this is where it gets crazy. Um, so the first person I brought in wrote a bunch of great music and I, you know, I, I would meet with Gindy just like always and I spotted it and then I gave direction to the composer I brought in. Now, the only thing that went awry was on the second meeting for the second episode, Gindy sat down, he's all anticipating like another blown away feeling. He's like ready to go and I'm ready to go. I play it for him and he's just like, no, no, man, this isn't happening. It's not good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I was dying. So I'm like, okay, all right. So when is it due? He's like, well, you know, we wanted to get it done by Monday and this was like a Friday. And I'm like, okay, Ooh. okay, can I do? Now I'd already spent quite a bit of time on that first episode. So I knew to redo the second episode was gonna take more than a weekend. I knew it was gonna take at least a week. And um, Shit. I, I, I remember Gindy went home and it was kind of, it was nighttime. I was in my studio. I, I was just like, I can do this. You know, I started just trying to rewrite the whole thing and just do it all myself. And about, you know, a couple hours into that, I could see that the effort I was putting in was pretty much futile. Like there was no way I was going to make it by Monday. And um, I was faced with a very, very serious choice. Do I attempt to do Samurai myself and possibly undermine my ability to do my first major feature film that already had this huge orchestra at the end of it. It was like a dream for a composer, especially at my level, really any composer. It was like a dream job. And not to say that Samurai wasn't a dream job, but it was, it was a different kind of job. And at the time, particularly at that time, there was a real delineation between doing film and doing television. And I felt that my career would benefit the most from putting my effort into the film. So yeah. I decided to go full, full on, like full disclosure. I called Gindy up and I said, um, hey. He's like, hey. I'm like, so <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I can get this thing done by Monday. And he's like, oh, oh. He's like, oh, how long do you need? You think you like need like a few more days or what? You know, and I'm like, I think I need like, I think I'm gonna need like 35 more days. And he was just like, Shit. what? Like, he was just like, are you serious? And I'm like, I am, I am. I, I understand, you know, I understand I might be putting you in a bad position. Um, but to be honest, I, I, I've got myself in a, in a pickle here and, and I can guarantee you I'll get it done in 30 days, 35, whatever I said. But this, you know, I think that's the only way it's gonna work. So he was kind enough. I mean, it, this was one of these do or die moments. I mean, I thought for sure it was just gonna be like, well, we gotta let you go. But he said, all right, let me, uh, let me call you back. I have talked to my producer. So he called his producer like 11 o'clock that night, calls me back by midnight. And he's like, Jim, if you promise me, there's no way you cannot be one day late. Like no, you cannot miss this deadline because we're right oh up against God. the wall. And I'm like, I, I promise you, there's no way I will miss this deadline because I really <laughs> sat shit. down and like, 
I, I had figured it out. I really sat down and realized, I'll, you know, I'll finish Jay and Silent Bob in about 20 days. I'll have 10 days to work on this episode. I, I like, it wasn't even a case where I tried to pad it to make it look better. I was just like, I got to just tell them the truth. Otherwise it's not going to work. So right. he allowed me to do that. And while I worked on Jay and Silent Bob, I met Paul Dinletier, who was a, at the time he was just starting out, he was doing a lot of trailer music. He had a great sensibility for the kind of drama that was required for Samurai Jack. And he really took to the music that I had created for that first episode, that we had this sort of model that we knew Gindy loved. One of the challenges was that the first episode of Samurai was super dark and super dramatic. And the second, if I remember right, I think it was the second where all of a sudden there was like some goofier dog characters and some like, it changed. Like it got kind of a little more, I think they maybe were going for more of the humor. It, it just had really changed. A little bit lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was part of it. And I think what might have thrown the first guy I had, I had asked to jump on it. But Paul came in and just knocked it out of the park. Like he just did an amazing job and continued on that series for the rest of it. So I, I would be remiss in not like giving him a lot of credit for a lot of the sound. I, my ego cries every time I get an email saying, can you send me that chicken rap cue? And I'm like, it's not even mine. Paul did that one, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, Holy shit. you know, in all, you know, I, I, I think really what the role I took on, it, it ended up being a really cool situation because I, I would spot with Gindy. Um, and the neat thing was it's different to get your direction from a composer than it is from a director or a, you know, non-musician. So I could give mm -hmm. Paul really direct, like do this, do this. When you get here, do this. When you get here, do this. And then Paul would send it over to me. We'd present it to Gindy and Gindy would give notes and again, I would interpret the notes for Paul to give him the most direct, like, all you have to do is this. Because a lot of times a director might say something that if you've been working on a piece of music all night or for nights in a row, they'll, you know, somebody come in and they might say, could you make it a little faster here in the beginning? That is a fucking nightmare. Like, it is just like, oh my God, all my timings are going to be off. Everything's going to be wrecked. It's going to be terrible. Um, but as a composer, I could kind of say, okay, here's what you gotta do. Add a few bars in the beginning. He wants a little faster, but you can do it. And so I could really give him precise direction. And also that's, you know, I was lucky that I met Paul and, you know, he just really brought, he, he eventually just really just brought that show a whole other level. He took it to, to the next level. So props to him for that. Yeah. That's insane. What a crazy like roundabout. That's an amazing. I like how like every everything you worked on has like this crazy like but backstory like it's, this should happen like and no one knew. Yep. Like that is yeah. so insane. Yeah. And I really liked how so you were kind of doing a very similar service it sounds like for Paul like what you had, had happened to you in your career earlier. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And and it's neat because he's gone on to uh, start a company uh, called Audio Machine. They're like one of the biggest trailer music companies around right now. 
Um, again, sometimes my ego cries a little bit when I go to his house, which is bigger <laughs> than mine now. And uh, he's got he's got the most beautiful view of the Malibu beach. Like, I mean, I'm just like, clearly, I, I really should have jumped off all this shit and did trailers because I, I picked the wrong career. But uh, You're like, I fucked up. <laughs> yeah. I, I still got time. I still got time. Hey, yeah, man. Oh, absolutely. It's all, yeah. You're all good to go ahead, man. Yeah. That's funny. So did you work with Will I Am in Samurai Drive? No, that was a very um that that theme song was a connection that Gindy had with with him. And that was a completely separate meeting. And uh, you know, he had I think it was still I think he went over to where Black Eyed Peas were doing their stuff. And he told me about going in and hearing that for the first time. And he he's like, there's some dude sitting on a big speaker smoking a joint. And they're like just blasting. He's like, it was so loud. I, I don't think I've ever heard music <laughs> louder in my life. And, it, you know, blew him away. It's a great theme song. I, I think it had a lot to do with like giving the show a, a, a great identity um, that existed way outside of the score itself. It was sort of like, the theme song is what it is, and I never really brought it into the show as part of the fabric of the show at all because I just felt like it's a song, it stands on its own, and then the score is all about whatever's going on in the episode, the storytelling. Yeah, that way it didn't feel forced. It kind of probably, probably would have felt like disjointed to have two different kind of vibes. Mm, yeah. And you would feel like it was forced if you're trying to like work that in. Right. So it... So is that, makes that sense. is that more common, at least in animation, to have a separate, maybe a separate team do the opening theme or? I think or it kind of goes a little, it can go either way. Like Powerpuff was a situation where the first order of business was to write a theme song. And oh, okay. so yeah. that theme song was created by us for the show. Um, Gindy even, I remember cr- like we wrote several versions of that. Um, I was working with those two guys at the time and their role was sort of a supervisor role. And they they even took a crack at it because it was like we were sending stuff over and they're still kind of like, no, no. So they were taking a crack at the theme. I took a crack at the theme, several cracks at it. And then finally, um, Craig and Gindy came over to my studio where we had all these versions up and we were showing different versions. And I remember the the melody in the theme for Powerpuff that plays for the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. And it has like that blast beat. Da, 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 right. Da, 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 in the background. Yeah. So I, I wrote that theme as the Powerpuff theme initially because I thought these are like some badass chicks that are like, or little girls, and I'm going to give them this kind of badass sound. And Craig heard that and he's like, that's, not right for the girls, but it's perfect for Mojo. Like that's a great theme for Mojo Jojo. Oh, so yeah. okay. he, so he he had the idea. Let's use that part for when the villains show up as like, hey, this is like the villains showing. And then yeah, it's like the cue. Yeah, exactly. And then we had the beats going, and we were all singing different stuff. I think Gindy jumped in and started singing a little bit, and before we knew it, that bump bump came out of that, and then that's when. I said to them, I'm like, what if we do like three different takes on that melody, each one for the for each girl, like a more heroic one, oh, a little more yeah, badass yeah. one, and then a little yeah. bubbles one. Yeah. 
It's like their identity. Yeah, it was. Oh, it's so perfect. I, I never remember thought of being that. a kid. Like, I mean, that was like when you're little, little. Like, I remember being keyed into that. Like, that totally works. I'm like, you know, ten or littler than that. Maybe like it's like ninety. What I don't know. It was a anyway, while back. I was little, but but we like, but it, it totally works. Like kids key into that. Like I remember like being like, oh wow, I can I can see it like fits them, but yeah. you know you can't articulate Especially, it. Especially like you think like but. Uh, Bubbles is so yeah. It's like it's like music boxy it's like a little a, bit. Yeah, in the and then Buttercups is the guitar, yeah. the hard guitar. Yeah, that oh, is so, it's so cool. I never thought of that. Yeah, that is so crazy. Yeah, and that's sort of what gave birth to that one. And then, like you know, like with Samurai, that was just sort of a situation where it it was like he'd always thought I'm gonna have the Black Eyed Peas basically do that. So it, you know, I didn't really. <laughs> that's hey, amazing. That's cool. Man. If, you, if you got the connection, that's yeah, cool. exactly. Like, eh, the Black Eyed Peas. Why not? All right. Um, <laughs> Well, I did want to ask, uh, you know, for the sake of the show, you know, being more anime centric, I always, uh, you know, I was kind of wondering, did that have any kind of impact on thematically what you're writing for like Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack? Because those both have very much like an anime vibe to them. Like there's there, there are definitely elements of anime that are incorporated. So I didn't know if that had any kind of impact on that. It's a perfectly valid question. My exposure to anime at the time was minimal. Like, I was aware of what anime was, um, but I was not, like, just entrenched in that scene and understood, you know, the sound of that. Really, I guess the short answer is not really. Um, the The look of the show was influenced by it. The And any influence, any anime influence in the music was indirectly brought in probably by Craig or Gindy saying, Hey man, do something like this. Like I remember, oh, I remember okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I remember like with, um, the words that Craig used with me for Powerpuff was he said, um, and I think I started to say this earlier, but then I said, I'll wait until later. But at the time, you know, it was big beat techno. And then I think Gindy kind of brought in, a sensibility of uh, 50s monster music. And so between Craig's Big Beat Techno, Gindy bringing in 50s monster music and me kind of looking at that and maybe pushing into even horror in some cases. Like I remember Scream had come out and I was a big fan of that movie. And so like if the girls were in trouble with bugs and stuff or whatever they were fighting, I would go full tilt, serious, horror and and or 50s monster music with beats and that's sort of what powerpuff was all about to me anyway that's crazy that's amazing you totally like can see that now though that you said that yeah yeah like all this you can just kind of like see especially like roach coach yeah yeah exactly that was the first episode i scored and i remember you know with all those roaches everywhere and and just like going for that weird, creepy, crawly music that you would hear like in a no, you nailed exorcist, it. Yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, I think you really did. Cause it's oh, like- that's so cool. And that's one of my favorite things uh, yeah. is whenever, you know, like the adults that are working on like a, a program for, you know, children get to like bring in like these like adult concepts that aren't, you know, they're not adult, but like, you know, things that. Maybe you know, a kid wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, mo- you know, modern. Well, like, that's yeah. a Everybody very influences. interesting point. I mean, that was a through line throughout Powerpuff Girls because Craig was very aware of the Batman TV show and how they had multi-level humor, 
where they would have jokes that would go right over the kids' heads, but then like mom and dad will be laughing. And then, you know, then they had stuff that would hit with the kids too. And a big thing that we always thought was we're never going to play down. We're never going to think in terms of let's make it easier for kids to understand. It was just about, no, if it's serious, play it serious. If they're freaking out and scared and, and typically in animation, all of the emotions are, you know, between the, like the differences between live action and animation to me are that in animation, the emotions are very over the top. Like if they're sad, they're super sad, schmaltzy with like a little violin and it's like just horrible. And if it's like horror, it's like over the top, scary, you know, very impactful as opposed to just keeping it simple because maybe a, a younger mind is listening to it at the time. No. Yeah. That totally, that totally makes sense. Sorry. I just like that writing is, all these. Yeah. Things no, down. That's Sorry. so crazy, man. <laughs> no, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh man. So I, I'm really curious about, um, my life as a teenage robot. Um, and uh, can you talk about uh, just so you worked on Powerpuff and Samurai Jack and then um, you had you did Foster's as well. Foster's Home for yes. Imaginary Friends. Yep. Yeah. And so I just I just would really like to hear. Um, can we can I ask about Foster's? Yeah, go a ahead. Bit? OK. Yeah. So <laughs> I really like to uh, just here, just kind of like, you've just had these really interesting anecdotes about Fosters. So I just like to hear about your time on Fosters. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> Fosters was um, a show that, you know, while we were working on Powerpuff, Craig had been playing with the idea of coming up with characters based on, I believe, if I remember right, he had based them on rescue dogs. Like when he would go to the pound, there was always like different kinds of dogs there. Some of them might be missing like an ear or like a piece of an ear or, you know, like they've been out on the streets. They're, they're not perfect They're but they're all, they all have personalities and they're all in it together. And so I believe in, you know, if I understood correctly, and I think I did, that that was sort of the impetus for what Foster's was all about. And when Craig came to me about that show, his words to me were, psychedelic ragtime. He wanted to yes. have like a 60s psychedelic sound mixed with the upbeat ragtime, like frenetic speed of that. And um, he was even going to buy me a tack piano and like bring it into my studio. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, dude, you don't have to do that. Like, I appreciate it. I would take it, but I wouldn't even use it because everything I did was through the computer yeah. and I wouldn't have been able Effects. to use it anyway. And, um, yeah. So we came up with some great samples that got to where he wanted it sonically. And if you want, I can send you some of these demos too. I don't know if that helps, but I can, I can send that out over to you guys. Um, That'd be cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did this. Um, my initial take on Foster's was to just take the word psychedelic ragtime and just write a bunch of music all in a row, just like a suite of ideas and themes and, um, different vibes, if you will. And when Craig came in, he um, was like, this is great. And he loved it. And like my idea for the main title, he was like, this is great, but it's way too slow. Like, can we make it faster? So it literally like tripled the speed. Faster? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and now yeah. in that case, it wasn't a nightmare because it wasn't a picture. So it wasn't going to mess anything up. It was like, yeah, speed it up and see what happens. And, um, and that's what kind of 
gave birth to that sound. And I took kind of a big band approach, in, but instead of using um, horns, I used kazoos and banjos and, yes. and kind of more of that ragtimey kind of sound as opposed to big band, if you will. Oh, man, that's, that is cool. That's amazing. Now, before I, I, I love that show. I also, th- you're going to notice a theme because at this time in my career, I had this sort of double life as a, quote, film composer. So I was, mm. at the time, really looking at creating a music company, and I modeled myself after Hans Zimmer. I was like, I'm going to be like Hans. I'm going to like have all kinds of composers working with me. I'm going to direct them, and then I'll take on 10 projects at the same time, and I'm going to be a billionaire. It didn't work out. But <laughs> <laughs> we admire your. Yeah. Hey, yeah, you gotta shoot your, for the, shoot for your the, vision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But and now I'm I'm kind of I'm kidding. I mean, in a way, it really did work out. I mean, we really had a great like ten years or so where this model worked just great. Um, but I got to give props to a young lady who at the time was well, she's still young to me, Jen Remington, Jennifer Remington, Jennifer Kess Remington was. My assistant at the time, she was my go-get-coffee girl, my answer-the-phone girl, and she was also a composer. And so Foster's was an opportunity to bring her in, and it was a situation where I built a separate studio at my location, which was the same house that I used to show music to Craig and uh, Gindy, but I turned the whole, I'd moved out and turned the whole place into a studio. So I had like all the bedrooms were different studios and Jen used to come in and she would work on Foster's and I had like a matching setup so I could sit down and add stuff to it if I wanted to. But yeah, I want to give a definite like tip of the hat to Jennifer Kess Remington for a lot of the day-to-day scoring of Foster's, especially after the first season. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so, so stinking cool. Um, so Actually, a really interesting question. So I, we noticed that, I mean, all of all these shows you were doing were with Cartoon Network. Yes. And then you transitioned to My Life as a Teenage Robot with Nickelodeon. Yes. And so if I, I was just kind of interested to hear, like, if there was any, like, process change or what led you to that change or yeah, sure. anything like that. Yeah. Um, uh, Teenage Robot was Rob Renzetti's show, and Rob had worked with Gindy and was aware of my work on Powerpuff and Fosters. And Rob called me up and was like, I'm doing this show over at Nickelodeon, it's called Teenage Robot. And I was like, that sounds great. Um, he had told me about you know the premise and everything. And to be honest, like I was slammed. I was working on like two or three movies at the time and I immediately hung up the phone and I called Paul. And I said, Paul, I just got offered <laughs> this show, I'm like, I literally cannot say yes to it unless you say yes to doing it with me. And he was like, yeah, I'm on, man, I'll do it. So I, um, I brought Paul in to help me with that show. He did pretty much all of the music. I'm not gonna like take credit for it. I, I can only take credit for being the interpreter, the person that kind of kept us kind of in line with what the show was about, um, you know, I. I think the influence of that show was all about Jenny and her being a robot and a teenager. I mean, that it seems silly, but it's yeah. like it's really oh, on no, the nose. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the approach. We, and, and in a way, a big part of the sound of that show was not Powerpuff or not Fosters or not Samurai. It was about 
How can we come up with something different? And what Paul kind of came back with was very more of a smooth kind of electronic. Um, it had maybe a, a feminine touch to it, um, but just more like a, I guess maybe in a musical terms, in musical terms, it was almost like it had some ambient, you know, kind of elements to it. And it was more of a straight electronica. It didn't have a lot of break beats. Most of the beats were created by drum machines. It was more of an electro sound. Hmm. Is that the kind of vibe you get? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it like, makes sense now that fit, you hear it. it fits, and you're like, oh, yeah, shit. like what? And it fits like, like you said. I mean, I feel like that's one thing that's really cool when you like articulate. It's like this is what I was going for. I'm like, that is, that's what I felt. <laughs> that's what I got out of it. You nailed um, it. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I was just talking yeah. to Paul before. I, like, you know, I mentioned I was running about ten minutes late. I was just talking to Paul, and I, I, I saw you had that question. I almost was like. You want to add anything to this man, like you know, because he brought he brought his sensibility to that show. So, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what what the influence behind him is all. Dri in all cases, we want to have the show be driven by who those characters are, and usually a show will have a bible in the beginning where they've really kind of spelled out like this is who Jenny is. She's all about this. She hates this kind of stuff. She loves this kind of stuff. And these Bibles are what then go to the writers and to the other board artists so that they can go ahead and create new stories. And a lot of the model of how I was running Venable Music at the time was based on seeing how a creator of a show could come up with all the characters, could come up with the sound, and then articulate it to fellow artists. And then they don't have to do every single thing themselves, and they could kind of expand that way. So that's kind of the approach I took. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. And was there any difference in your process from uh, getting working with uh, Cartoon Network to Nickelodeon? Or very, it was very similar. Similar, um, yeah. I had, at the time, uh, we always met in person because the internet was never fast enough to do the kind of things we're doing right now. <laughs> and um, crazy. The so Rob would come to my studio, and a for a while Paul would come and listen as well. But it got to be hard to sometimes it's with traffic and stuff. He'd be writing up to the last minute. I'm like, you know what? Let's try having um, doing like a conference call where I put you on a speakerphone, so you're in on the meeting. And then what I would do is I would broadcast my video back to Paul through um, iChat. And so he would see what we were watching through the iChat and then hear what Rob was saying. I would take notes. He would take notes. And then after Rob would leave, we Paul and I would compare notes and like clarify everything and make sure that we we're on, all on the same page. But sometimes it would go awry. I remember one time with Samurai Jack. Um, I wrote something to Paul. It was a note for a cue that Gindy had asked for. And I think he'd said something like, um, you know, we want something, you know, I wish I could remember the exact words, but at the end of the day, it was something where I had scribbled out to Paul, write something. Um, I don't know what I was, I think it was supposed to be like dramatic and sad, but somehow the way I had written it, like came off like I'd written seventies. So, I'm watching the show, 
And I hadn't heard the music yet because it was a really a last minute crunch where Paul had just sent it over and Gindy was just getting there and I loaded it up and I started playing it. And we got to this last scene and this is really sad moment. And all of a sudden it was like, and I'm just like, and I'm just staring and I, you know, and Gindy's like, what were you thinking here? And at the time, I don't, th- I don't think, thinking? I don't think I had even told Gindy that I had somebody helping me. So I had to like sit there and just be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was singing. Uh, <laughs> I think I got mixed up. Uh, my bad. And Paul and I just died. Like I called him up and I was like, I was like, did you read this as seventies groovy and not like sad, you know, whatever I meant, you know? And he was just like, yeah, why? And I'm like, Cause yeah, it was supposed to, he was laughing. We laughed our asses off I and mean, it was like, couldn't have been more wrong, but we fixed it. You know, it worked out, but um, Dude, yeah, teenage robot. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. That's really good. No, it's crazy, man. That is too funny, man. Um, so one other slightly self-indulgent question Please. was how did you, find uh i mean you worked on like i mean with powerpuff and then uh with the work you did with paul i mean you were on these two really girl power kind of cartoons in the 90s aughts so just like kind of what what's it i guess what was your kind of experience and like philosophy kind of doing working on that kind of show i guess i i really you know we're in a different time right now Um, it'd be interesting to hit a show like that now. And what, what would the ramifications be of like, you know, girl power and that kind of thing kind of means something different than it did back then. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I think we just thought of Powerpuff and Teenage Robot as like, these are superheroes and they're, they're, they've got superpowers and they kick ass and Powerpuff particularly, I mean, like was those girls were every bit as powerful as the rowdy rough boys. There was no differentiation. So the, the thematically musically, maybe it allowed for slightly some instruments that you wouldn't necessarily put on a male superhero, like the little bells you mentioned for bubbles. But I mean, that's character. You know what I mean? It's not even Mm -hmm. about whether it's a guy or a girl. It's about what's the character. So I would say in both cases, it was less about these are girls and more about what is their character. Because Buttercup, she's she was a badass, you know, and, and she always was tough. And so, you know, that that's it, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's no, That great. makes sense. I think it, the, the reason it works is because you didn't treat it any different. Mm, because yeah. it shouldn't have been treated any different. Yeah, totally. And so it makes sense that it's like, I, I had talked to Alexandra about this a little bit that I was, you know, kind of giving shit when I was watching this as a kid because people were like, that's a girl show. And I'm like, no, man, this show's cool. Like, I yeah. like it. Like, yeah. it's, these, all, it's like superheroes, superheroes and these yeah. girls are badass. Like, it's cool. So I found myself kind of had to having to justify it just because of like, you know, the I do remember boy, boys watch this and girls watch that. That like was that very I remember that climate and I remember it. Powerpuff was a show that girls loved and boys loved secretly. It was like it, it really was a thing of like boy not every boy wanted to admit that they dug powerpuff girls i mean later on when those boys grew up and became men they were like i love that show but back <laughs> yeah. at the time 
it was Case like, in point right yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I do remember that. And I, I think that's a challenge that people that are doing um, programming for that age bracket still face. I think that um, uh, Craig McCracken's wife, Lauren, um, she's working on all kinds of shows. She's always trying to break down barriers with that and trying to make sure that there's strong female characters and that, you know, that the merchandising is, is equal and, and it's, it, we're getting there. I mean, we're really getting there now. I mean, like we've got yeah. some just kick-ass female characters on all fronts. It, and I didn't notice, you know, I'm been, with my girlfriend Katie for about 10 years and she's super sensitive to that. And like, she's always like pointing out to me like, Hey, have you noticed this whole fucking movies? Like all guys. And it's just like, no, I didn't notice that until you mentioned, I'm like, yeah, it is all guys. Why am I watching a bunch of dudes? Like it actually is nice to have <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> to it's have the that, sausage you know? fest, y'all. <laughs> yeah. That is too. Yeah. I mean, you don't really think about that, but that is definitely something that was a thing whenever, you know, just kind of being ridiculed of it. And I think that's what makes it stick out to me because like I was saying earlier, just like the vibe behind the show is like, those are really things you really get shit on. Like if you don't like the band that everybody likes, like people are like, well, you like dumb music or if you like, uh, especially anime that's you would, you're like the weird kid. Yeah. But now everybody likes it. Like you see like Michael B. Jordan's into anime, Kim Kardashian's talking about her favorite anime. It's like, what the fuck? Like, I like the shit when it wasn't cool. Like, where are you guys? Why are you guys coming in now? Like, but maybe that they were the kids, like the boys with Powerpuff Girls. They were like hiding in their hearts, you know. And now they can proudly proclaim, "Yes, I do like an animation in all forms and flavors." That could be it. Absolutely, absolutely. It's cool that it's like a lot more accepted now. Yeah. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you was, uh, you know, you've gotten to work on so many of these awesome projects and you know, such like iconic cartoons and working um, with Kevin Smith. I know working I mean, with Kevin Smith. Goddamn. No big deal. Uh, <laughs> now nah, that was a big deal. I, 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 was, I was thrilled. Yeah. 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 Cool. I know yeah. how you meant it. Sarcastic. I know how you meant it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was wondering if there was still like a, you know, like the dream project. Is there something like you're like, I would like to work with this director, this animator, this show. Like, I would like to work with so-and-so. Like, is there something like that to you that you're like, oh, man, if I could if I could just work with them, then that would be like the shit. That's a it's a great question. It's something I've been thinking about. Um, you know, typically. I mean, what what I find my fa- my favorite projects are action comedy. And even Powerpuff really was an action comedy. Um, the reason I love that genre is because it um, it has such a range. I mean, you get to really play these characters in these really absurd situations, but you get to be the musical straight man, if you will. So it, it I get to really get deep into stuff. It's not to say that I don't love drama. I probably, I, I welcome, I guess the short answer is I don't really have a dream project in mind. I mean, I think if you like pin me down, I mean, I'd love to do like a, a, the, the next Marvel superhero movie that's all bitching and cool and, and, you know, just <laughs> over the top, like high profile, like that, that sounds amazing. Um, but in some ways, the bigger the project, the bigger the budget, the more you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, you don't necessarily get to have the freedom I recently completed a series called Clarence on Cartoon Network, and that 
was like, I got to quietly just go crazy on that show. Like I got to write everything from like eight bit weird electronica. I could have done anything. Like if they gave me a dramatic scene, I could have written it with a Casio keyboard or I could have done it full orchestra and they would have been like, yeah, that's great. Go for it. You know? And that kind wow. of freedom is exciting, you know? Um, so it's difficult for me to nail down what the dream project is. I, I guess in a way, you know, there's that, like I say, of course, the big tent pole summer, big blockbuster, that that's sort of the Holy grail to m many composers. It, it's probably been my Holy grail for so long that it's sort of like the de facto, but in a way mm -hmm. I'm wondering if really my next thing might be to do more music on its own as opposed to, to a, to, to picture or, um, maybe to do the music first and then have the story created after the fact, kind of like what Daft Punk did with, um, Interstellar. Interstellar. Yep. Yeah. We just you showed that I, here at the theater that uh, we're at. Nice. We, we just showed that last yeah. month. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah, was that's thrilling crazy. You brought me. that up. Yeah. That, that was super film. cool. And, and I've also been doing a lot of, um, live, scoring, if you will, with these improv clown crew, uh, in, improv clown troops. I know it sounds, that's uh, dope. I know it's really <laughs> cool. There's a whole kind of subgenre of improv, you know, improv meaning like say yes. And, and like build stories in front of people and that kind of a thing. But clown is a little more about connecting with the audience, allowing things to go wrong and then seeing things go wrong as a gift and then building on that. And uh, there's two groups in particular. There's one called High Wasted, which is a three-girl group. Um, they're a clown troupe. They're hilarious. They do most of their stuff silent. And with them, I write music separate, and I give them uh, tracks. Um, and then there's another duo called Jetso, and that is a, uh, a duo. And they come out, and they get one suggestion, and then they'll build a whole story like it could ranges between 20 and 50 minutes. And in that case, I show up with a bunch of instruments and I lay them out in front of me. And then I offer things by playing stuff and then they may react to it and that might steer things. Or as they come up with ideas, then I grab an, oh, oh grab the, the weird flute that I have with me or the weird drum or whatever. And so like that kind of thing is kind of exciting for me right now is to sort of create on the fly. It's it's less about making a perfect thing that has to be perfect and then gets fixed and tweaked until it's perfect. It's more about allowing things to unfold. Oh, that's an amazing answer. I, I, I'm so, I'm so happy. Like as a, like a writer myself, like to hear that from another creative, it's, it's again, it's just more, it's just validating, you know, to hear that kind of thing. It's just allow it to work with it. Just let it breathe. Know. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, that's really great. I'm going to be interested, interested to see if I can bring that into like a project. If I say I'm on another series or another movie, it's interesting because you can slip into like, if you have the time, you'll take it and you'll work it as long as you have that time, you know? And that's one of the sure. joys about the improv is that there, there is no time to think you need to make a sound now. And, you know, hopefully it's working. And if it doesn't, that's the amazing thing is that if you, if I like, 
I've had some of the best moments of these shows be when I knocked over an instrument at just the right time. You know what I mean? And like it oh, kills wow, the audience, yeah. you know, like I'm reaching for another one and I knock over some kind of singing bowl and it goes rolling across the stage and it's just, <laughs> you know, and, and that'll happen like just after one of the characters said like, oh, I don't know. I was molested as a child. And it's like, what? You know, and then I'll drop an instrument <laughs> and it's like crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it's like yeah. finding that magic in the moment. I think, I think in a way, entertainment wise, maybe that, that could be where we're headed in some ways because we have so much content, pre, pre-made content coming at us that to have human interaction where, you know, the audience can influence what's going on with a suggestion or when they laugh or when they don't, or you know, you feel the audience and that, that influences, it's like a give and take as opposed to a one-sided projection, if you will. Yeah. yeah. It's like call and response. You know, I actually, I think you got something there because like, I think that kind of supports the idea of like where we are with like Twitch streamers and like people doing like let's plays and like the video games industry. And like, because again, it's like one of those, I mean, granted, you know, you're with a webcam and you're separated by, you know, screens and stuff, but people, you still have a response from the audience that affects and it's, it still is that kind of interactive yeah. people like broadcast themselves drawing with an audience, you know, like on Twitch and stuff. So that's really, that's a really good um, note that you made there. It's really interesting. Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, do you have any, do you have anything else? Right no, I uh, mean, I, I think that's great. I really, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, Jim. Oh, yeah. I'm happy to. You guys are great. You guys are like really fun to talk to. I could do this all night. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything else? Like any anecdotes, any areas you're like, oh man, I, this one thing. You know, not really. I mean, I, that last kind of section was, was something that I think is very current to what I'm about yeah. right now. Yeah. And I'm, as I, you know, it's funny because I'm, Paul's got this great trailer company and I've been writing some tracks for him and we're, we're both kind of looking at the industry of, you know, music and what do people want to hear and what, you know, and it's, it's, it's changing. It's different. It's like, it's not enough to understand all of your music theory. It's not enough to understand what works from the standpoint of just music. You have to get into like sound and, uh, synthesizers and samplers and then turn those on their ear somehow and run them through things that make them something unrecognizable but different. I think that's been the big the big push. I mean, Clarence, the original uh, creator of that, always had this sort of directive of like, let's do something they've not heard, never heard before. And we pulled it off a lot, but honestly, it means sometimes we didn't pull it off because like we're sort of influenced by the work we've done in the past or the fact that it's a cartoon might mean that we use certain approaches. So some, you know, it, I would say we had varying degrees of success of keeping it weird and different. Plus I should give a shout out to, um, uh, Simon Penrucker who Penrucker, who, uh, also worked on Clarence. He, he brought a whole dynamic voice from the uh, song perspective as well as a score perspective. So yeah, big shout out to him for that show too. Ah, oh, that's cool, man. 
That's awesome. Well, yeah, that sounds great, Jim. Again, thanks for taking the time. Um, real quick, why don't you tell people where they can follow you, like on social media, like your website, everything like that. Keep kind of keep up with you with what you're working on. Yes, yeah, so, um, I have a website of www.venablemusic.com. V is in Victor, E-N-A-B-A-B-L-E.com or venablemusic.com. Um, and then um, I'm also on Facebook. I'm still figuring out Twitter. I'm still figuring out. Um, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> yeah, Twitter is a garbage fire anyway. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah. And I'm 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 getting hip to my my daughters are getting me hip to Instagram, but I I'm not quite Heck there yeah. yet. Nice. I, I gotta get on that bandwagon. <laughs> so that that's coming. Awesome. <laughs> nah, that's cool. That sounds great. Where can people uh, kind of follow you and uh, and look for your updates, Alexandra? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Alex V. Brohannon. That's B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N. It's a bromanteau of my last name. Um, and you can follow me on that handle on Instagram. You can follow and find The Cinematropolis at thecinematropolis.com. That's where our show is, uh, The Cinematic Schematic. Great. And you have your own your own section of show that yes. I really enjoy. Soundtrack, the yes. Soundtrack. Yes. And so, yeah, well, uh, again, you can follow us on social media, guys. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then you can listen to us on Google Play, iTunes, wherever you find your fine podcasts. And so thanks again, Jim. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was my pleasure. I was really nice to talk to you both. I really enjoyed this. It was a kind of cathartic for me. So thank you. Heck yeah. yeah. No, sure, it was man. awesome. I loved every... <laughs> Every stinking second of it. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. <laughs>